Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. You know, in the 38-year history of Word of Life Church, we've had snow Sundays, We've had ice Sundays. We've had flood Sundays. We even had a Sunday when the flood was only inside our building. There wasn't any flood outside. It was just inside the building. Some of you remember that when our sanctuary flooded and we had to go meet in the MYC. We even had a broken air conditioned Sunday. This is going way back to the early 90s. Some of the old timers will remember this. We were in the midst of this terrible heat wave. This is when we were meeting at uh, Frederick Avenue. And a terrible heat wave and the air conditioning went out. And I just just didn't have the heart to gather the people in in that building for fear that we would lose some to heat stroke. And so we went and we had church in the park. That's where church in the park began was out of necessity because it was just too hot. So we've had snow Sunday, ice Sunday, flood Sunday, broken AC Sunday. But this is the strangest Sunday I think we've ever had. Uh, because, um, what is it? We're doing social distancing. I, I don't really like that social distancing. I, it's physical distancing. See, socially we're gathered. We're gathered socially, you know, through social media and in internet. Thank God for that. Uh, but we're physically being distanced. And so this is a strange Sunday. Well, what I want to talk to you about this morning is love in the time of coronavirus. And yes, I borrowed that title from the novel by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, He's a Nobel laureate novelist, fantastic novelist, uh, perhaps best known for his novel, A Hundred Years of Solitude. I I hope this doesn't turn into that, (laughs) A Hundred Years of Solitude. But no, he he also wrote a novel called uh, Love in the Time of Cholera, and so I've adapted that for my sermon today, Love in the Time of Coronavirus. Well, this Sunday is the fourth Sunday of Lent, and everybody is participating in Lent this year. Everyone is fasting something, whether you plan to or not. I mean, everybody's given up something, right? Because you went to the grocery store and it wasn't there, and so you just have to give it up. You maybe didn't plan to, but that's the way it's going to be. And everyone is anticipating Easter or resurrection, or getting beyond the season of disease, darkness, and dread. We're anticipating getting beyond this time. So many of you are participating in the Lenten journey by reading uh, the Unvarnished Jesus daily devotional. And today's scripture reading comes from actually year C in the Revised Common Lectionary. Uh, We're in year A, and that's the John 9, Jesus healing the man born blind story. But For the book, for the devotion, I chose the year C, and that's why we heard the reading of the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus' most famous, most popular parable, no doubt about it. And so I'd like to begin by just actually reading to you the uh, selection for today from the unvarnished Jesus, where the scripture reading that we meditate on is the parable of the prodigal son. In 1669... The great Dutch painter Rembrandt turned this parable into one of his masterpieces, The Return of the Prodigal Son. 
Today, this painting hangs in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia, where I've seen it more than once. It always brings tears to my eyes. There's a reason why Henry Nouwen once sat in front of the painting for eight hours. In Rembrandt's return of the prodigal, the reckless son has returned home from the far country. This boy has been to hell, and you can tell. He's clothed in dirty and torn rags in stark contrast to the luxurious robes of his father. He has the shaved head of a prisoner, and his shoes have nearly disintegrated. The boy is kneeling in humility with his face buried in his father's chest. Rembrandt has worked with color and light in a way that draws our attention to the hands of the father as they rest tenderly upon his son. Strangely, the right hand is feminine and the left is masculine. Of course, this is not due to some deficiency in the skill of the painter. Rembrandt seems to want to capture both the fatherly and motherly nature of God's love. This masterpiece is a portrait of sinners in the hands of a loving God. Those of us who know the story realize that those hands will soon present his son with a rich robe, new shoes, and a costly ring. Then those hands will clap with authority as the father orders the preparation of a great feast to celebrate the return of his long-lost son. This parable brims with theological significance as Jesus shows us that the heart of the father contains no wrath towards sinners but overflows with gratuitous love. And what we don't find in the parable is just as significant. There is no appeasement theology. The father doesn't first rush to the servants' quarters to beat a whipping boy and satisfy his wrath before he can forgive his wayward son. No. In the story of the prodigal son, the father bears the loss and forgives his son from his treasury of inexhaustible love. He just forgives. There is no payment, no appeasement. Justice as punishment is what the resentful brother called justice. Justice as reconciliation is what the loving father calls justice. The only wrath we find in the parable belongs to the Pharisee-like older brother, not the God-like father. The ritual sacrifice of a substitute victim has nothing to do with the justice of God. As Rene Girard has shown, Ritual sacrifice has its dark origins in the scapegoat mechanism where the tribe extinguishes the danger of all against all violence by killing a single victim. Ritual sacrifice does not originate in the heart of God. It originates in the violent heart of humanity. God does not require anyone to be killed in order to forgive. The fatted calf is killed not to satisfy justice, but to provide the meal of reconciliation. Today, I invite you to adapt your atonement theology to what Jesus teaches in his beautiful parable of forgiveness. Lord Jesus, help us to see the beauty in the gospel of forgiveness as you have proclaimed it and liberate us from our wrong ideas about an angry, violent, and retributive God. Amen. For my sermon today, I want to begin with one verse from that parable. Luke chapter 15, verse 14. But when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Perhaps the most forgotten detail of this parable is, 
is the famine. We remember the father, the two sons, the inheritance, the riotous living, the pigs and the fatted calf. But we forget about the famine. We forget about the famine because famines are foreign to us. Famines are something that happen in a different time or in a distant land. I heard about a recent experiment that I found was fascinating. They took two groups of people, Russians and Americans, and they had them read the parable of the prodigal son. Everybody would read it one time. And then having read the parable of the prodigal son, the researcher would say, now, uh, tell me the story. Repeat the story. Tell back the story as much as you remember. Here was the biggest difference between the way Americans and Russians heard and remembered and retold the parable of the prodigal sons. The Russians remembered and emphasized there was a famine. About 90% of Russians would remember that detail. About 10% of Americans did. The Russians remembered that there was a famine. Americans forgot there was a famine. It didn't figure into the parable as they heard it. Why is this? This is because famines have been foreign to Americans, but Russians within living memory have experienced famines. For example, the siege of Leningrad during World War II, where for 900 days, St. Petersburg, or then it was called during the Soviet era, Leningrad, was under siege by the German armies and 1.4 million people in Leningrad starved to death. When I first started going to Russia about 20 years ago or so, uh, I would hear of people still living, elderly people who had lived through the siege of Leningrad, who continued to hoard food for fear that once again they would be in such a situation. Uh, The other thing the researchers found is that Russians tended to be more sympathetic to the prodigal son because He had suffered through a famine. Well, why did I choose this verse about the famine for my text? Because we've thought that famines and plagues, they kind of sometimes go together. We've thought that famines and plagues belong to other times and other lands. But now coronavirus has invaded our time and our land and our lives are suddenly disrupted. You know, much of humanity, I almost want to say most of humanity throughout history, have lived disrupted lives. But for many of us, that's not been the case. For Americans living in a wealthy nation, with all that that has afforded us, we are not accustomed to our lives being disrupted. Yet here we are in the spring of 2020, living disrupted lives during an enforced Lent. We could think of it that way. Lent has been enforced upon us. And we have to fast and we have to lament. We have to give up something. Our lives have been disrupted. So that we have an enforced Lent in the form of coronavirus come upon us. Is this a good thing? Of course not. No, it's not a good thing. Disease and death are not things that proceed from the goodness of God. Nevertheless. God can cause all things to work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. 
God doesn't cause all things. No, God doesn't cause all things. But God can cause all things to work together for good. To those that love God, those that recognize that God has called them to his own purposes. So God is not the author of coronavirus, no. But we can look for God in the midst of it. And that's what I suggest we do. Because God is at work in the midst of all kinds of tragedies that God does not cause. So I want to encourage you to try to be alert to what it is God is doing in the midst of this thing that God did not cause. So what does the coronavirus pandemic mean? What does it mean? What is the meaning of this? We we want to find meaning. So this coronavirus pandemic has come upon the, the earth. What does this mean? Well, it means that I don't think it means anything other than we are fragile human beings susceptible to disease, that a fragment of genetic material can imperil the lives of millions and threaten the global economy. If we want to find some real meaning, it's not that this thing has happened. Rather, we find meaning in the love of God and love of neighbors, not in the vagaries of a virus. The lectionary reading for this Sunday in year A, we read from C, the parable of the of the prodigal son, but actually the the lectionary reading actually for this Sunday is from John chapter nine, the story of Jesus healing the man born blind. Remember that story in John nine where Jesus is in Jerusalem and Jesus and his disciples come upon a beggar who was born blind and the disciples raise a theological question. They said, whose fault is this? Here, this tragedy has befallen this man. Who can we blame? Whose fault is this? Who sinned? Who sinned that this should happen? For the disciples, there was just this idea that there had to be a one-to-one connection between tragedy and sin. That if something bad has happened, somebody sinned somewhere. But Jesus does not subscribe to that theology. And Jesus explained to his disciples they were asking the wrong question. The question wasn't who sinned. The question is, what can we do to help? Jesus says what we've got to do is work the works of God. So the question when they encounter the tragedy of the man born blind isn't whose sin, whose fault was it, who can we blame? It's how can we help? And Jesus proceeded to heal the man. So in the time of coronavirus, the question isn't who can we blame? The question is how can we love and who can we help? That might just be my sermon right there. That might be it. In the time of coronavirus, the question isn't who can we blame. The question is how can we love and who can we help? Now, throughout history, you understand, you understand that epidemics are not new. You know, there have been waves of epidemics throughout human history. And throughout history, epidemics have produced almost invariably violent attacks upon scapegoats. During the Black Death of the Middle Ages, it was often the Jews in Europe who were the scapegoat. And so the bubonic plague would break out somewhere in France or Italy or somewhere in Europe. And what would people do? They would say, well, we've got to find who to blame. Whose fault is it? And Almost always, it was the Jews. 
And so I would think about, you know, these Jewish people, they have to go through the plague like everybody else, but then they, on top of that, they have to suffer persecution from the hands of their Christian neighbors. Thursday, Perry and I and Aaron and Sarah and some others in our pilgrim group to the Holy Land flew from Tel Aviv back to the United States, back to New York. And on the flight, um, well, the flight was about, I would say, 90% Jewish Orthodox. These were American citizens who were Jewish Orthodox, most of them living in Brooklyn, who now, because of the coronavirus, needed to return home. So we were on a plane with 90% Jewish Orthodox. And, of course, people are wearing their masks, and everybody's very aware of this epidemic. And I kept thinking about how the ancestors of these people on this plane with me were attacked by Christians during plagues in the Middle Ages. Make up your mind that you're not going to attack anyone during this pandemic, okay? Do you hear me? Make up your mind right now. Just make up your mind. You're not going to attack anyone during this pandemic. We don't need that. That's the work of the Satan. You don't need to do that. Make up your mind that you're not going to go online and blame somebody. Let's blame the Chinese, blame the Democrats, blame the Republicans. But no, just don't do that. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of advocacy. It's the unholy spirit that's the spirit of accusation. So be filled with the Holy Spirit and don't play the blame game. So we're in a real crisis right now, no doubt about it. And in a real crisis, we're about to learn something about ourselves. A crisis doesn't form our faith. A crisis reveals what we really believe. Okay, a crisis doesn't form our faith. A crisis reveals. This is the test. We're getting our finals right now. School may be out, but no, school's in session. Because we're about to find out what we really do. We really believe as Christian people that the two great commandments are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If the season of coronavirus gives you some extra time, which it may very well, you know, you may be off work, maybe confined at home. Don't know all the details, how this will play out. But if But if the season of coronavirus gives you some extra time, we'll spend some of that extra time in prayer, sitting with Jesus, contemplating, drawing near to God, spending time with Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John so that you can be prepared to pass the test and to love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. So how are we going to love our neighbor right now? Well, maybe, maybe it's loving your literal neighbor. I mean, the person that lives next door to you. Maybe you need to share something with them, not hoard it, not buy it up, not go out and buy three more freezers and see how much stuff you can stow away, but share. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe loving your neighbor is to leave a roll of toilet paper on their front step. I don't know. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, we used to TP somebody's, somebody's lawn, you know. Well, you take the roll, don't, don't unroll it, just, just leave it on their doorstep. Maybe, maybe that's how you love your neighbor. I don't know, but you'll find a way if you'll be sensitive, the Holy Spirit will prompt you to do something very practical to love your neighbor. So we are in a season of of practicing social distancing. That's the term. I like to think of it as physical distancing, not social, because socially we're gathered here through technology. But anyway, that's the term. So we're practicing social distancing, not because we don't want to get 
coronavirus primarily. We don't, but that's not the primary reason we practice social distancing. We practice social distancing because we don't want to spread it. It's a part of loving your neighbor as yourself. And remember, we're called to be people of faith, hope, and love. Those are to be the primary characteristics of the baptized who confess that Jesus is Lord and seek to follow Jesus in such a way that we could be worthy of the title Christian. We're to be marked by faith, hope, and love, not by fear, despair, and self-centeredness. This could be a time that the pressure will be to to become self-centered. Don't do that. Now abide these three, faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. Let's be characterized by that. So I have three things I want to say. Just as, as we think about love in the time of coronavirus, I have three things I want to say. Number one, we don't know what's going to happen, but we know we're not abandoned. We don't know what's going to happen. We, we just don't know how this all plays out, but we know we're not abandoned Jesus said, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So we're not alone. We're not forsaken. We're not abandoned. Hold on to that. Number two, we can't control our lives, but we can trust God. You know where stress comes from? Stress comes from the fight or flight instinct kicking in. We're we're upset. We're afraid. It's uncertain in this primitive instinct of fight or flight kicks in and it wreaks havoc in our body in the form of stress. There is a third option and that is to trust. Instead of giving in to fight or flight and being all stressed out, learn how to say, I'm going to trust God. You know, I find it interesting. We, we had Psalm 23 during worship. That's because in the lectionary, that is the Psalm for the day in the, in the revised common lectionary. And so Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of coronavirus, I'll fear no evil. The Lord is with me. Number three, we can't help everyone, but we can all help someone. There's going to be a lot of people in need. We can't help everybody, but we can help somebody. And so I I think every day we need to be praying, Lord, show me who I can help today. Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's sharing something you have. I don't know. But the Holy Spirit knows. So those are the things I wanted to say. Number one, we don't know what's going to happen, but we're not abandoned. Number two, we can't control our lives, but we can trust God. Number three, we can't help everyone, but we can help someone. Amen. Maybe I could add a fourth one and keep giving <laughs> as you're able, you know, as God provides for you. If you don't have anything, then you can't give. But if you do, you can, you can tithe, you can share, you can give and continue to be faithful to the church and that area. Amen. So we're called to love in the time of coronavirus. You know, the failure of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal was a failure of love. And notice how it plays out. The, the younger son has come back. The father has prepared the feast. They've killed the fatted calf. They've got the barbecue going. And now it's evening. Now now it's night. And now the party is going and they have a band in the house. And there's music and there's dancing and there's barbecue. And where is the older son? He won't come to the party. He's outside. He's outside. He's angry. He's gnashing his teeth. Maybe he's so upset that he's crying. We could say this, he's in the outer darkness. 
where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What has happened to the older son because of his failure to love? He is living in a self-imposed hell. He's, he's in hell, but he put himself there. The father, In fact, the father goes to where he is in the outer darkness and pleads with him to come to the party, to forgive his brother and to join in the celebration because his brother was lost and is found. He was dead and is alive. Come to the party and celebrate. And then the parable just ends. We don't know what happens because Jesus is presenting this parable to those that need to make the decision about what they're going to do. And if they decide to rejoice in the mercy of God, then they too can join the party. If they decide that there are some that do not deserve the love and mercy of God, then they can find themselves outside of the celebration feast of forgiveness in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It reminds me of what Elder Zosima says in Fyodor Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov. The wise elder says, what is hell? The suffering of being no longer able to love. Let's not inflict that upon our souls. Amen. Well, this crisis has come. This coronavirus has come upon us during the fasting season of Lent. This is the season in which we journey with Jesus toward his death and resurrection. On Ash Wednesday, the ashes are imposed with these words. Remember that you were dust. And to dust you shall return. More than any other time in my life, we are right now being reminded of our vulnerability, our fragility, and our mortality. I think the other thing that we're really being reminded of is that God is exposing the illusion of independence. You know, I think that's how God is using this. I don't, it doesn't come from God. But now the illusion of our independence. Because we like to, you know, I, I live my own life. I'm my own man. I'm, I'm self-made. I live my own life. And now we realize, no, man, we're all in this together. I think that could be one of the positive lessons we could learn from the Holy Spirit if we're willing to learn it. That the idea of radical independence is an illusion. That just a little fragment of a genetic material has exposed to be entirely false. I read this morning words from Eddie Halisum. Eddie Halisum was a Jewish, Dutch Jewish, mystic, poet, philosopher, writer who ended up in Auschwitz. And she was able to, though she didn't survive Auschwitz, some of her writings and musings did, and they're worth reading At one point in Auschwitz now, Auschwitz, Eddie writes this. I am not alone in my tiredness or sickness or fears, but at one with millions of others for many centuries, and it is all part of life. Yeah, this Jewish mystic had a healthy soul. And she said, I'm not alone in my tiredness. I'm not alone in my sickness. I'm not alone in my fear because I am at one with millions from the centuries who have been through the same thing. And it's all part of life. I think that's a healthy attitude to happen, to have. All right, as I close, I'm, I want to just tell a little story. Uh, last week, I was five days in Jerusalem. And every day that I was in Jerusalem, I visited the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. 
This is the church that is associated with the traditional site of the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ordinarily, the church is very crowded, but because of coronavirus, it was almost entirely empty. There was hardly anyone there other than the monks and nuns that are, that are always there. And so I had some times of solitude in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and I spent most of that time at the Golgotha Chapel. This is the place associated with the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, there's a picture we've put up that I took uh, in the Golgotha chapter, uh, Chapel. As I was able to sit alone and just meditate on what it means that Jesus Christ was crucified. Well, these are the thoughts that came into my soul during those times of meditation in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. God in Christ shares our humanity and our mortality that he might heal us and give us the hope of resurrection. We're going through Lent and we're enduring an epidemic, but we're headed for Easter and new life. Amen.